All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope, as always, that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation for you with J.D. Haltigan. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Psychiatry in the, at the University of Toronto. Uh, he studies uh, applied uh, psychology and human development, uh, particularly focusing on child and youth psychiatry. Uh, and he's someone who I've been uh, paying attention to on Twitter for a while now because of the writing that he does and the attention that he pays to the level of depression among a lot of uh, youth uh, in the Western world. Something that's been an item of some discussion on a number of different forums that I pay attention to of uh, in recent days. Um, Jonathan Haidt obviously has been writing about this for quite some time. He has his own thesis uh, around the application of uh, social media and uh, what it's done to uh, the brains, particularly of young girls. We also see, of course, the writing of uh, Matt Iglesias about this, who's pushed back against the notion that this is just another example of late-stage capitalism and depression related to things that Taylor Lorenz thinks matters. Uh, and we've also obviously seen uh, Derek Thompson at The Atlantic uh, weigh in on this with a number of podcasts recently on his own uh, uh, podcast, Plain English, which I encourage you to subscribe to, where he is dealing with and unpacking a lot of the different elements that go into living a happy life. He had a recent episode on happiness, which I highly recommend, uh, which looked back at a very lengthy longitudinal uh, Harvard study uh, starting back in the 1930s uh, about the different ways that uh, people, particularly young men, live their lives and what equates to a happier life. These are all big, deep questions, and uh, they have complicated answers. Uh, I think that it's really unfortunate that uh, far too many people seem to go to the easy answers as opposed to uh, trying to really unpack all the different aspects of what's going on here. For example, I would say uh, that the politician answer of just saying this is about social media, so we need to ban it uh, because it's uh, hurting the brains of young people is too short-sighted. Uh, I also think that the answer that's delivered uh, by you know a lot of people that says that essentially what's going on with uh, younger liberals, uh, either uh, boys or girls, both of whom are more uh, depressed than their conservative counterparts, uh, is simply about uh, climate doomsdayism or something of that nature. I have this conversation with J.D. Haltigan uh, to get his input on this, but it's something that I think I'm probably going to return to uh, in um, uh, more than one instance on this podcast in the future because I think it's really important to understand what's going on. And I think that unfortunately for a lot of the social scientists and for a lot of the politicians who are trying to address this problem, that the answer may have more to do with the downfall of religious faith uh, and religious community in the West uh, than it does any particular policy or any technological invention. My conversation with J.D. Haltigan coming up next. Professor Haltigan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you. So I want to talk to you about a number of different things, but I, I have to say, uh, you know, sometimes in between asking my producer to reach out to somebody uh, and having them actually come on and, uh, and talk to me, uh, they say something that attracts or piques my interest. And uh, yesterday you posted, you tweeted out something 
that I found very interesting. Uh, you wrote, if by this point you do not understand we are living through an attempted cultural revolution incubated from within the academy, I can't help you. I can just urge you to push back against what you instinctively know is wrong and a lie. I tend to agree with you, but I'd like you to explain what you meant by that. Sure. So, you know, I've been in the academy as a professor and, and um, research for quite some time now. Um, and I've also just been a regular human being who, you know, is living through some of the cultural insanity that we're undergoing here in the States, um, but also in Canada, too, uh, you know, occurring on social media in, in the you know, ecosystem there and, you know, seeing it from within the academy and understanding how it's kind of arisen, um, to me, it's just jarring in a way to see a lot of the stuff around gender and uh, critical race theory and just more or less a push towards uh, a manipulation of language where everything that you thought was right or normal or correct in your interpretation of how the world works is completely backwards. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter for, for my job because I do a lot of work there uh, in terms of connecting with colleagues. And, um, you know, a lot of what's happening in the academy is being sort of quote unquote fought on Twitter and, and pushing back on Twitter. If you're an academic who is pushing back against some of the quote-unquote woke insanity. And so, you know, having read people like Martin Gurry and, and, and connected mm -hmm. with people like Mike Schellenberger and others, Chris Rufo, um, I kind of, you know, I, I really can't help you anymore if you can't see what's happening in front of your eyes in the culture, in the external environment, and, and helping you understand that it's not just a social media phenomenon. It's being talked about there, but it's truly happening. A lot of colleagues that I've had um, from the the Washington, D.C. area where I grew up have told me about what's been happening in the schools there, um, shared with me various things that have been going on, especially since COVID. So that's more or less what, mm -hmm. what I'm getting at in that tweet. Um, and it seems like every day there's, there's sort of a, a next level on the ladder in terms of how intense it gets and the pushback that's necessary to you know empower people who are who are otherwise maybe not comfortable speaking out about what they know is mm. it's just bonkers to say so you know the undercurrent of that tweet and this is the thing that i think is so interesting about this current moment is i feel like there's been a great awakening since uh the dawn of the pandemic to kind of a different framing of our understanding of, of both the, the public school K through 12 education system in America, and then also the, the higher ed uh, approach to things. It, it's similar. It's very similar to the conversation that happens around media. Basically the conversation before among right of center or even centrist liberals in the classic meaning of the term, um, around what they saw as being a problematic development within academia uh, was about, you know, turning things into thought crimes, shutting down speech, you know, going after professors who had heterodox views. 
and they viewed that as being kind of a, a an element of bias within the academy. Now, I think that the attitude is different. Now, I think the attitude is more, oh, wait, this is intentional. This is something that is meant to target people with views that are out of sorts with uh, what this dominant trajectory of, you know, however you want to categorize it, you know, you can call it woke leftism, you can call it, you know, a, a redefinition of humanity, which I think it is on some level. But basically that, you know, we thought that this was sort of a, an element of what was going on. It turns out, it seems like for a lot of Americans to be the focus of what these entities are about. That to me is a pretty disturbing thought. Yeah, I think what's happened in the academy is you reach a critical threshold of people with a certain view and it becomes untenable unless you end up in a situation where rather than being a bias, as you mentioned, it becomes an intentional purging in a way of others who have or don't share the sort of mainstream um, neo-Marxist view of things, of a complete world that is only determined by social factors rather than evolutionary biological foundations that guide human development. And so once you reach that threshold, you have two things happen. One is the people that are kind of directing it are able to direct it more sort of, um, you know, ham-handedly. And then the others who are left in there either have to get out or, you know, they, they're cowered into not speaking out because they know that their careers, especially if they're more senior, could be completely tarnished, completely wiped away with one accusation. And so they have to sort of play along. Um, and for me, that's been one interesting part of it is that I'm more of a junior, you know, academic who, you know, I don't have some of the, the limitations that other senior academics might have to, you know, not speak out like a family to support per se right now or, or other things that would preclude me from being as vocal and pushing back as I am on Twitter, for example, or even within the academy. Um, and it becomes more of a principled thing for me if if my work is in evolutionary psychopathology and, you know, obviously attending to evolutionary forces and biological forces and human development is important, I'm not going to stand for a world in which, you know, that's sort of considered racist or sexist to consider. Um, there's a, um, there's a line in Brian De Palma's uh, Mission Impossible movie um uh, you know, I, I do love anonymity. It's like a warm blanket. <laughs> and so and so being a little less famous can sometimes uh, help you in that instance. Uh, look, I want to shift to talking uh, about what I originally wanted to have you on uh, about, which is uh, looking at some of these depression levels among teenagers uh, and some of the conversation around that. But before I do shift to that, I have to ask you, there is this poll, you may have seen it, um, for, uh, the commissioned by uh, a fire, the obviously the uh, free sp free speech group that looked at the concerns among uh, the uh, academic field, and what they found is that an extraordinary number of uh, professors who describe themselves as politically liberal, I would say they're politically leftist, but you know they, they're using the old term, um, are concerned about losing their jobs 
over what they uh, over what they would name as a misunderstanding, meaning that they will say the wrong thing. Some student will take it up, presumably, take it to the uh, departments in question, and then they will lose their jobs, get fired. You know, to me, I I have, I really do have a lot of sympathy for these folks because, uh, but at the same time, didn't they enable this revolution by teaching the kind of things that they have over the past decade or more? Yeah, I think to some degree you can say that that that, that they they have. I think there's a dif- difference in classical liberal professor versus the more radical professor that's new from the you know colleges of education or who's more radical progressive in the sense of they don't like debate. They're more, um, I would say, feminine in their characteristics of agreeableness um, versus not really liking disagreeableness. And if the, you know, if the academy is really going to be what it was intended to be, there needs to be that liberal discourse, which is adversarial and which can be, you know, not always pleasant to, to engage in, but now you're in a position where even the, the liberal, classical liberal who, who liked free speech, who liked viewpoint diversity, even that now is not allowed. Um, and so to say that they enabled it, I think to some degree they, they have, but I think what, what's happened is you've just seen a threshold of these new, um, I guess you could say, they're not classical liberals in the sense of classical liberal. They're more of a, mm-hmm. a, a new generation, I would say, of of liberals who are more radical, more progressive, and, and not, not what we would consider someone who's a classical liberal, but just has different views on, you know, um, you know, fiscal spending or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think that we're going to see more authoritarianship, more, uh, uh, illiberalism, uh, more views that basically say, you know, it's, it's acceptable to shout down speakers, uh, you know, drive people from the Academy and the like, um, and I think there's going to be a backlash to that. I think that there's a natural backlash to it. Um, and people are going to seek out other methods of instruction and of, uh, and of learning in order to get around that. Yeah. And I think you're um, seeing, you're seeing that already happen now on mm-hmm. Twitter and, and through Substack and, and through a lot of professors who are, who are leaving, um, yeah. and, and creating their own podcasts or ways of, of instruction. And, and, and I think that they're in, in a certain sense, they're taking the things that they used to say in front of the classroom, exporting them to a larger audience that's more receptive, more interested in what they have to say, and doesn't have the capability, even if they wanted to, uh, you know, to get them deplatformed. It's a very interesting phenomenon. I'm sure we're going to see it continue to uh, develop. But the original reason that I wanted to talk to you is because I'm very interested in this debate that's playing out. In the past uh, uh, couple of months, it seems to have taken on a new character to it. Um, among a lot of different uh, politicians, media figures, and academics, uh, regarding the levels of depression that we are seeing among American teenagers. Uh, obviously, last month, the CDC released its uh, the results of its youth risk behavior survey among American teenagers, uh, and it found, not surprising, I think, to anybody, uh, that... Uh, teen girls in particular are suffering from just re- incredible levels of sadness and depression, um, things that are 
you know, on the historical matrix, very high. Um, it, what actually prompted my interaction with you was me making a joke, which I don't think actually people took as a joke about the uh, idea that uh, depression in the 1990s led to some really great music. <laughs> and, um, and I was trying to just sort of find the silver lining here. But this is actually uh, of deep concern, I think, for a lot of people, American parents, uh, you know, obviously people who care about uh, the, the element of social media in terms of driving this, you know, which is what we hear a lot about from the politicians. I'm curious as to your perspective on this. What are the sources of this phenomenon? How serious is it? How much should it be an item of concern among parents, voters, politicians, and policymakers? Well, I, I, I think it's it's a big concern, particularly for, for adolescent females in particular. I think there's a number of factors. I do share uh, John Haight's opinion that social media has a lot to do with this, um, not exclusively as any question about human development is. It's not just exclusively one factor, but social media... I think is a big part of it, which is not just that people are getting into it and away from connecting with others in the real world, but it is driving everyone to a world that is disconnected from the external environment. Um, I think the other part of it, obviously the pandemic played a role in this too, but the third part of it, I think is to some degree, there there is a sort of a breakdown in the culture of, um, what I would call interdicts or rules, you know, in a post-religious world where anybody can be free to pick an identity or to think that that's the way the world works becomes problematic when you have a lack of structure, whether that's a lack of structure from um, no religion or just a breakdown in the parental unit, the family. But you can also have that coming from people just being too distracted from the chaos of uh, politics, from the chaos of school disruptions, from the pandemic. Um, but we know from research just more generally that even despite all of that, uh, men and women differ in their rates of depression, uh, anxiety, neuroticism. Men tend to be more aggressive. Um, these are basic facts of biology. But for adolescent females, once you get into these spaces and you disconnect from the external environment and typical social interactions at school, uh, at athletics, it can become very toxic in that environment. And I think especially with females in a post-religious landscape with no structure, you get into these algorithmic media platforms, which can, you know, lead to self-comparison um, about for whatever reason, for body image, for um, just who you are. And TikTok is one that I've focused in on with some colleagues that's, that's been more. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I've I, I read some of your work on this. Um, uh, it, it certainly seems to have, it, it definitely, you know, has taken over the, the kind of mind virus level that social media can have. Yeah, TikTok and Instagram and, and to a certain degree, even Twitter. But I think for, for adolescent females, when you get into those spaces that focus in on uh, comparison of body image or comparison of social relationships, um, it can be very uh, damaging to to the self concept. And then you get into these to these spaces where the 
the actual identification with a disorder becomes the person's sort of self-concept because in a post-religious world uh, or a world where otherwise they're not building their self-identity through needs that would normally occur through sports or through school or through normal human social relations, what becomes their identity is this new victim mindset. Uh, Others have spoken about this uh, quite a bit as well. And it's sort of this victim-based world that becomes sort of the the cachet to identify oneself as. Um, and so that becomes reinforced and reinstantiated. And, and so they live in that world where they expect to behave in that way. And that can lead to, you know, obviously, you know, depression, anxiety, and other forms of the, uh, of mental illness that they're ticking off in these surveys but more generally an existence that is sort of existentially mm-hmm. void of, of any hope. And, and I think that's really something that's concerning. And if you think about it, even when you go outside or, or you interact in your daily course of affairs, everybody is on their phone at some point. And so it's, it's pulling away at population scale from normal human relationships and, you know, if you're an adult with some level of self-restraint, you can kind of put the phone down, engage with your family, engage with your friends, sports, what have you. That's not as easy for someone else whose world is completely immersed in that environment. And so can I ask become, you a personal question? Yeah. Do you, have that, do you have that setting on your phone where it alerts you at the end of the week about your usage, like your, your average hours or anything like that? I, I don't have that. However, I'm well aware that I spend a good deal of time on social media, but one of the escapes for me is physical activity where I have to be engaged in either playing hockey or some sort of aggressive physical activity where you simply physically can't have the phone in your no, that's, hand. That's, no, that's a wonderful way to approach it. I, I like to personally, I like to go on uh, walks where I leave my phone at home. Um, so I just don't have the capacity to interact with it. Um, there's a so there's a response piece from um uh Matthew Iglesias who's been a guest on this uh podcast before uh on his Substack Slow Boring which you can find at slowboring.com uh, and the headline for his piece is why are young liberals so depressed uh he writes in part uh a 2021 paper by Catherine Gimbrone, Lisa Bates, Seth Prinz and Catherine Keyes it's titled uh, The Politics of Depression, Diverging Trends and Internalizing Symptoms Among U.S. Adolescents. The CDC survey doesn't ask teens about their political beliefs, but Gimbrone, et cetera, uh, or et al., uh, find not only divergence by gender, but divergence by political ideology. Breaking things down by gender and ideology, they find that liberal girls have the highest increase in depressive effect. And conservative boys have the least. Liberal boys, however, are more depressed than conservative girls, suggesting an important independent role for political ideology. I'm not going to ask you to evaluate a a paper, which I don't even know if you've read or not. But I found that to be an interesting suggestion. The idea that liberalism within this sort of younger cohort, they were looking at um, uh, high schoolers. So I believe it was 12th graders, 11th to 12th graders that they were looking at. Um, 
I found that to be an interesting insight into this because, you know, I mean, we can have all the kind of cliched talk about fear mongering on the left about climate change or the end of the world or something like that. But there does seem in, in a kind of academic sense to be a consequence to some of the concerns that raised uh, on that on that side of things. It's interesting to me that the people who are most opposed to, uh, you know, the prevalence of social media in American life, people like Josh Hawley, et cetera, in the Senate, uh, are on the right, even as it seems like the victims of that, uh, at least on on the assessment of, of this paper and, and, it, and some other research as well, uh, tend to be on the left. Yeah, and it's funny you bring that that post by Iglesias up. I actually had the um, – I replied to him on Twitter, and I actually had discussed that same paper in a prior Substack essay where I break down the current – trend of some of this um i love when i run into something that someone has already written about <laughs> um, yeah and so on my Substack, i have a piece where I, and i responded on twitter the other day when when i saw that post by maddie that i'd already discussed this in some great length but um yes absolutely in the paper that he cited i had actually posted in the in the Substack essay that i wrote so i'll direct you to to my Substack to see that um, we'll link but, that in the show notes great yeah absolutely um the the left is a a movement that is about fear and it's about fear of of existence really that drives a lot of their their policy and their their call to action and if you think back to the democratic national convention um prior to the uh 2020 election you know who who was the guest when we were in the pandemic and it was all remote. If you remember, it was surreal. Right. And so that was <laughs> so, sort of the glamorization of, uh, of the victim mental illness as identity sort of framework. And, and so part of it is that they valorize sort of that victim mentality. And it's driven by, you know, it's, it's contextualized by fear of environment, you know, catastrophe or, it's fear of being oppressed in some way or or basically marginalized. And the problem with that is is it takes away the agency of the person to to address their situation. So they wallow in that self-pity mm. um, rather than recognizing that, hey, I have a, a problem or an issue that that I can change, or at the very least, that I probably shouldn't amplify and wallow in. And so I think part of it comes down to the worldview that, that has this sort of oppressed, oppressor mentality, and they have to be, or they have to cast themselves as a victim in some way um, mm-hmm. to, to appeal to, uh, you know, the empathy of voters, to appeal to the... Um, to the ears of, of voters, potential voters about, you know, for example, climate catastrophe. Um, and so I talk a little bit about that in my Substack essay where, where I talk about this paper and social media amplifies that. Um, and so you have this sort of situation in which that whole movement is, is sort of, 
uh, exaggerated through social media and sort of um, absurd displays. Think about all the climate activists and their um, grandiose displays of, of gluing themselves to floors or destroying paintings. It's enhanced by the sharing of it on social media. And the same can be said, too, for these presentations of illness. Uh, I wrote a piece on my Substack about TikTok. It's all this sort of visual element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of it has to do with the worldview of progressive, more so radical progressive orthodoxy, which is really what defines the left right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being someone who studies psychopathology in, in the academy, it has struck me um, that that this is the case. And you see this, too, with the gender stuff as well. Um, so I, I did happen well, I, to see that. And I think if you if you read the essay that I wrote, it might shed some additional light on why this is tending to be a female adolescent female sort of liberal uh, mm-hmm. a, you know, element to it. So you anticipated my last question, which is that, you know, we see weird responses uh, to these different developments, um, including uh, some within Canada, uh, some within America, of uh, various people trying to find ways to push back against this agenda of authoritarian wokeness, authoritarian leftism, but I think that a lot of Americans, myself included, are very concerned about this because we're anticipating. I mean, I have, I have a two and a half year old girl, and I have a five year, five week old girl, and we were, you know, starting our college funds for them this past week. And I was joking to my wife. I was just like, "Are you we sure we even want to do that?" <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, do we want them to assume that they should go to college? Uh, and at a certain point, it's like, you know, look, I mean, there are people who travel from all around the world to come to American institutions of higher education. You know, it's it's one of the things that draws people here. How do we, we save this? How do we not just, I mean, you know, it's one thing as a, as a conservative or as a, you know, kind of an online personality to say, let's just tax the hell out of Harvard and light the whole thing on fire, you know. But at the same time, I think that, you know, we – we would actually rather restore these institutions to being ones where people could go and learn, uh, could profit from that experience, could have knowledge that could be of great benefit to the American people and to the world. Is higher ed something that can be saved or is it lost to us? You know, I've really asked myself that question many times now. um, And I think more and more I've become of the mentality that it might be lost. However, one of the things that's recently given me some hope is the work that, that Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis have been pushing forward, you know, getting rid of the DEI bureaucracies and correcting some of the problems that have let this sort of happen in the first place. And so I think there has to be both a, a, a forward thinking of building new institutions with the thinking that they're gone, but also working at the same time, doing what what Ron and and others like Chris who've helped him push forward this new sort of way of pushing back against the DEI bureaucracy. And I think once there is some empowerment going on 
and and there's sort of a revolt from within, it may be potential that the the silent majority within the academies could push back and gain some momentum that way. But I think it has to be a two pronged approach. Um, and you know, I'm sort of it's hard to say what will the end be, but at the very least, the continued pushback has to occur. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a bad deal for for civilizational functioning once this stuff breaks down completely. Um, so I think if you had to pin me down, I think it would probably be a good idea to think about new institutions first, but at the same time, have these ground level movements that are pushing back because there are people in these institutions that know this stuff is bonkers. And so empowering them to speak out, I think could be very helpful in the long game too. A bad deal civilizationally. I like, I like that frame. I mean, I try, I try to think of a way to sort of frame that, (laughs) but when you think about some of the cities that are spiraling out of control with crime And, you know, things like restorative justice, that's a product of what's happened in the academy. So they're not... Yeah, people... Well, no, wait, no, you, 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 you're bringing up a really good point, which is to say, it's a, it's a weird thing to, to think about, but it is true. The fact that your pistachios are behind a locked uh, uh, plastic window when you go and buy them in New York is kind of a direct line from the academy in its origination. Um, you know, people don't necessarily draw that connection, but it's actually quite true. That Right, and I think, you know, the, the dysfunction in politics as well, but, but also, you know, obviously the hot-button issue right now with the agenda stuff, that is directly, clearly mm-hmm. a function of what's happened in the academy. And it's dangerous. I mean, it's it's... There's going to be a a price that a lot of human adolescents are going to have to pay, and it's important to correct this before it gets even worse out of control. Mm -hmm. Professor Haltigan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed it. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. There was a moment that went viral this past weekend uh, coming out of Bill Maher's program. His program is one of the few uh, that really does seem to have moments consistently that go viral online, on social media and the like. And it was a showdown between uh, John Heilman and... Uh, of MSNBC and of uh, Showtime's The Circus, uh, and Russell Brand, the uh, contrarian commentator uh, and uh, British uh, sort of uh, man about town, uh, comedian, actor, uh, all these other things. Uh, He got into a bit of conflict with Heilman in a clip that uh, I'm sure if you haven't uh, seen, you can find quite easily uh, in a an argument really about media and uh, what's going on within media. And I just want to hone in on one aspect of it. Halliman is sort of, uh, you know, trying to represent himself as being, you know, a, a kind of uh, cool kid, uh, you know, a rebellious guy, even though he was born in the 60s. Um, he's wearing a Joy Division t-shirt. He has a hand tattoo, which he got over the course of the pandemic. Um, and he's kind of uh, s- selling this body language that he clearly seems to be insulted by what Brand is saying. 
At the same time, he's clearly running into someone who is just definitively cooler and funnier than he is, and that seems to be bothering him. But getting past all of that, it does seem to me that this is indicative of a, a real blind spot when it comes to leftists operating in the media landscape. They don't seem to know or try to deal with any of the reasons that there's so much distrust for them and the messages that they're sending, especially after the last couple of years going through COVID, uh, going through the promise of uh, vaccination as being something that would make you immune to his disease when it uh, turns out not to be the case, uh, when it comes to the, the uh, uh, defense of COVID policies that now seem nonsensical to all of us, uh, particularly as it relates to children and to schools and, and the ability of people to get back to work and back to normalcy. I think that the media really does not seem to understand why there is such a high level of distrust uh, for what they have to say. They just don't seem to wrap their heads around it in a way that uh, fully uh, reckons with uh, the challenges that they are facing. And I think that because of this, uh, they really are going to be behind the curve in terms of uh, the attitudes of Americans when it comes to covering uh, major issues, politics, pandemics, and the like, uh, going forward. There's just going to be a higher level of skepticism for the frame that our dominant leftist media sort of uh, you know figures are going to put things in. And I think that that's something that they really have not yet come to grips with. Uh, so whether you're you know George Stephanopoulos or whether you're Jake Tapper or whether you're John Heilman or Joe Scarborough, I just think that you don't know why the American people don't trust you and you really don't seem to reckon with it at all. Uh, that trust that trust is really uh, something that they've lost over the course of the past several years, given the defenses that they mounted for all the policies that I just mentioned, among other things as well. Obviously, the fiction, the total fiction of Russiagate, uh, their ridiculous predictions about a number of different things that were going to happen in the world or not, uh, and their participation in a media environment uh, where all of the different things that could contend with the policies uh, the or the partisan priorities that they have are essentially swept aside, these factor into things. You can only present Michael Avenatti as being a legitimate person so many times before people start to pay attention to it and they start to judge you for it. And I think that's one of the things that, unfortunately, is a reality about our current media is not going to change uh, for the foreseeable future. And until it does change, and I think that may require generational change, uh, there doesn't seem to be any aspect of the media that wants to look in inside their own house and question whether they are getting things wrong, whether there are things they need to correct. Instead, they just turn this into uh, a war between them and knuckle-dragging conspiracy theorists, disinformation hawks, and the like. Uh, and that's something that is, of course, itself misinformation. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 